Hello and welcome to Sowing the Seeds of Change, where we explore the ideas that are forming our future reality. My name is Dr. Rosalind Savage. After an environmental epiphany 20 years ago, I left a corporate career to row solo across three oceans, using my adventures to raise environmental awareness. And ever since then, I've been obsessed with how we create a better world. On this show, I talk with scientists, philosophers, economists, and activists about how we create a thriving world for people and planet. I actually don't believe that we will survive as a species until we get beyond the notion that we're going to all agree. We're not going to agree. We need to have the, I mean, for me, the fundamental agreement needs to be that we don't violate each other against our will. So that means you can believe and do whatever you do so long as it doesn't violate my ability to do the same. On the show this week, I'm in conversation with Kimberly Carter-Gamble, who produced, directed and co-wrote Thrive, What on Earth Will It Take? and Thrive Too, This Is What It Takes. Kimberly comes from a background in journalism and film, and currently she's focused on helping to empower grassroots movements around the world to reclaim our freedom and develop tools and practices for spiritual awakening and averting medical tyranny. Kimberly tells me she eats mostly from her own garden where, as well as growing food, she also cultivates a habitat for native bees as her response to bee colony collapse. She currently has over 78 species of native bees. I've been fortunate enough to meet Kimberly in person a couple of times and we've had fantastic conversations about our shared passion for the thriving of people and planet. This is yet another fabulous conversation, and whether or not you agree with Kimberly's views, I'm sure you will find it fascinating. We talk about health freedom, transhumanism, big data, learning to disagree respectfully, courage, purpose and passion, life, death, consciousness and spirituality, and of course, thriving. Kimberly Carter-Gamble, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Oh, thank you, Roz. It's a pleasure to see you again and to be here. Well, as tradition dictates, I'd love to start off by asking you, what's your favourite quote and why? The quote that I probably think about the most and have for years is Audre Lorde's quote, that says, when I use my strength in service of my vision, it matters less and less whether I am afraid. And I really appreciate that because I see that fear really trumps everything from our common sense to our moral compass, as far as I can tell. And it's a, it's a really useful thing to acknowledge and then get beyond. And so um, she was always... I used to have a little card with that quote on it and carry it in my pocket. I love it. And I was thinking about this theme of fear and courage. And it strikes me, having watched Thrive and a lot of your more recent videos about health freedom, like you are one gutsy lady. You are really poking some big, powerful lions out there and naming them. I mean, do you ever fear um, for your for your safety, for your reputation by taking on these very powerful people? Well, thank you for acknowledging uh, my courage and for taking the time to see the movies and the work that I put out there. Let's see, do I ever fear? Sure, I in my work, I have seen a lot of what can happen to people who come up with innovations that disrupt multi-billion and trillion dollar industries. It's not a safe thing to do. And so, of course, it's normal to think about, okay, so if I'm going to do this, what are the consequences going to be? And for me, really, it was thinking about what are the consequences if I don't? I think, um, you know, recent, recently I heard a, someone was referring to a talk that Martin Luther King uh, Jr. gave a long time ago and said, um, you know, when he had this impulse, I guess he was 38 or something, I could be getting this wrong, but it was just in a conversation recently where he said, 
maybe he was 38, when he, he knew he was called to take the role that he did. And he realized that if he didn't do it, he would be beginning then a death that would only manifest later in his physical body. And I was really struck by that because I think for those of us who are clear about our purpose and our passion, then to not honor it is its own death. And to me, is a lot scarier than doing something that might have some consequence, which I can, you know, I have a security team. We have a good group of people who help us be as aware as we can be about the risks. And I have a lot of um, confidence that I am living the life that I'm here to live. And just that joy and energy and alignment, I guess, gives me such a good feeling that at least I know I won't die regretting that I didn't live because I was afraid of something that may or may not have happened. I mean, I imagine you felt that like once you knew that your job was to set sail, then to not set sail is a worse proposition. That, and it's just an inner thing that happens. And I'm grateful that it happened to me. I guess that is the thing about receiving a calling is that it's the thing that you can't not do and you just have to take it on and face the consequences. But I I did always hope that I would be more valuable alive than dead to the purpose. I had no intention of becoming a martyr. No, me neither. And I do a lot to stay safe uh, toward that end. And... I'm also at the same time, I'm really not afraid. I think the thing about reputation is something that it's a big issue to deal with because being afraid of whether or not I'm going to be poisoned or murdered or something like that for highlighting disruptive technologies or, you know, bold assessment of the stranglehold that I have a lot of evidence has been, you know, placed on the world financially and with regard to access to energy and clean water and sovereign empowerment and all the rest. Being afraid of losing my reputation or for anyone losing their reputation, that was really a more long-term and personally potent process, I guess, because it took me realizing that what I really care about is being respected by people who I respect, Mm. not by anybody. And so finding my voice and knowing that if someone doesn't agree with me or wants to challenge something that I'm saying or doing, go for it. And we'll have a respectful conversation about that and maybe agree to disagree or whatever else. But someone who's just throwing out condemnation or things that are meant to slander my reputation, you know, that's not how, that's not how we're going to get from here to a thriving world. Science needs to be questioned our structures, I mean, you know that, I think what you're after is right on target in the same way, that it's, we have to be bold in unpacking our assumptions. And to me, one of those main things that we need to unpack is our relationship with authority. How is it that some people have the authority to tell us what to do with something so basic as our own bodies? Like, whoa, if we don't own our bodies, and our thoughts, and our speech, that's a fascist world. So to be able to take responsibility for that and proceed fearlessly, despite what, you know, rumbles and flutters in my heart or whatever else, that's why I like that quote. It's like, it's not as if the fear doesn't run through my body. It's that it doesn't matter. I'm not going to act from fear. I'm wondering what sort of more challenging responses you get, whether you do get people saying, oh, you're a conspiracy theorist, um, as if that's a bad thing. (laughs) And I was actually thinking about this earlier today, that there's a whole spectrum of conspiracy theories, from the ones that are clearly bonkers to things that actually are real. And so to dismiss somebody as a conspiracy theorist is not really valid to just kind of put everybody who's challenging the conventional storyline, who's trying to wake people up out of the matrix, you can't just throw them all into one bucket. No, absolutely. And I think name calling in general is a bad sign if what you're after is furthering our common understanding of what's going on. And, you know, I mean, the history 
of the term conspiracy theory was actually coined by the CIA in response to John F. Kennedy's murder because so many people were questioning the government narrative on that, that they had to come up with something to squelch the, yeah, the disgruntled critical thinkers going, wait a minute, the evidence doesn't support the story. And so I think that, you know, to be called a name doesn't really mean much to me. And I think one of the things now, of course, is that like we made Thrive One, the documentary in 2011. And Mm. in that we were able to say we're on a predictive pattern here world and we need to pay attention to it because if not we could end up in a situation with a man-made global pandemic forced vaccinations high levels of radiation that we have no control over in our midst and these are the reasons that we're headed that way and these are the actions we can take to avert it and that was over 10 years ago so It's predictive. It's not like, um, wow, how did this happen? It happened because there are controlling interests and we need to pay attention to what they're doing in the world of finance and now in the world of um, medical totalitarianism, as far as I'm concerned. So to me, to, to say, oh, that's a conspiracy theory, it's like, well, let's just take a look at it. Let's look at some evidence and um, have valued conversations And I mean, I think about it when I know Fauci recently said, if you question me, you question science. It's like, wait a minute, science is questioning. That's all we're meant to do. It's a method for questioning in a way that moves us forward as a, as a planetary species trying to understand ourselves and our environment and our relationship. And so that kind of squelching of stuff or name calling, that really... That doesn't get my heart rate up anymore. I just find that to be a useless, yeah, just kind of a useless thing to do that stops what we need to be doing. I hadn't heard that Fauci said that. And that's really interesting. There's kind of a hubris there because it seems to be based on the assumption that the current state of science is as good as it's ever going to get, that we know everything that there is to be known. But of course, the people 100 years ago thought that they knew everything that there was to be known. And that's why debate and new ideas, I mean, I think that the courage that I want to have, most of all, is the courage to consider possibilities and understand that in that, I'm relying on my own discernment and I want to hear people who disagree discuss something so that I can discern for myself, oh, which part of this do I think, do I agree with, and which part of that, and which part goes in the category of I don't know, but I'll keep my eye on it. Like clearly, you know, quantum physics has major implications for our old traditional ways of seeing this sort of dead entropic universe, you know, where everything's just winding down compared to, wait a minute, what about life force? What is the energy that creates a fetus in the first place? Are we connected as part of something more robust and infinite in its potential? And, you know, we unpack that a lot in Thrive 2 because it has such huge ramifications for our understanding of energy and life and harmony with the environment and all kinds of things. And so to say, oh, that's impossible, I'll say one of the things that we got exposed to so much when I said we met so many neat people all over the world is people, one of the patterns is that they often thought they were looking for anomalies. They said, if something can happen once, then by definition, it's not impossible. So can somebody experience spontaneous healing? Yes, that has happened. So therefore, it's not impossible. So what are the mechanisms or factors that go into making that happen and have people been able to access energy from something that is beyond our current understanding of taking you know fossil fuels in the ground and crushing or burning or you know doing something with them that is finite and causes damage and whoa it turns out there are examples of that now whether or not they're completely uh, able to keep going or sustainable but they're representing something that's possible And then you look around and you go, whoa, the folks who are unearthing these possibilities and demonstrating them are being, you know, really slandered and called 
quacks and sometimes murdered, certainly sequestered, kept from being having access. And and so where I risked my reputation was in saying, wait a minute, I want to pay attention to them. I want to hear what they have to say. And the hard part is if they're, you know, I wish, you know, some of these inventors are just fabulous geniuses. They're pretty wild people. <laughs> and so then I have to go, look, Einstein was probably a pretty wild person too. We know he was actually. There are all kinds of fabulous people in our past who we now understand offered something. It doesn't mean they're the most balanced, fabulous, on-time people in the world. And so I'm willing to deal with that in order to learn new things. And I'm grateful that I am. I'm grateful that you are too. And to pick up on that general theme of critical thinking, discernment, open-mindedness versus the kind of comfortable numbness. I wonder how you've managed to try and encourage people, because I'm, I'm guessing that you wouldn't want people to swallow what you say in Thrive, hook, line and sinker. You want them to bring their own judgment, discernment, intuition to it. So are there any techniques that you've used to invite people to think more deeply about things and to maybe find a little bit of a, a chink in their sort of rock-solid perception of what they think is reality? Well, I, uh, that's a great question. I think that learning to hold conflicting ideas at one time is an essential part of critical thinking so mm. that you actually don't know. I don't know some things, right? So I'm going to listen to somebody's perspective and I have to suspend my own judgment for a moment to actually consider it all of the way. And to, you know, it's something I actually um, mentioned this in Thrive too, it's something that my grandmother, who was a suffragette working to get women the right to vote and a real activist in her life sort of trained me growing up with that uh, orientation. But she said, it's like, it's like trying on something in a store. You try it on. It doesn't mean you're going to buy it. You try it on. You see how it fits. You can take it home, consider it against other things that you know. And then either you, like for me, a lot of times I'll just put it in a holding pattern where I don't know yet about that. I'm going to just keep watching what other evidence is showing up. You know, we get into a lot of what's called conspiracy theory about the banking elite's control on money and what that does to people in our lives around the planet. And I didn't start out looking at that. I was, you know, just going along and it, I noticed in our research that the same people kept on benefiting in both financially and in terms of power for control from all kinds of various things that I was studying. And I thought, I wonder what the chances of that just being random are. I honestly, at one point, we wanted to go up to the university and get the statistics department to review the likelihood of these same people ending up in these positions every time, whether it was with our education system, our environmental policies, our financial systems, just pure consolidation all into the same hands and globally. And I just remember the morning that I woke up and realized there was just no way. It could not be random. And therefore, what looks like failure to me is actually success for someone else who's after a whole different kind of world. And I'll just say, fortunately, that's a very small number of people who have huge effect. But I am a big believer that most people are really good and want what's good for each other. And it's just differing in how we would go about doing that, that is uh, the issue. But I think that this kind of critical thinking and opening our minds to new ideas has never been more important than now. With, mm. with mandates coming out globally, requiring that all people agree to a particular medical procedure and you know, the, and the, the notion of a second opinion is now somehow, you know, nefarious that, that you should never want that if you don't just trust this one. Like if I went to a doctor who told me you have to do this thing, I'd go, okay, first thing I'll, or, or if they said, here's the state of things in your body, I'd say, great, I'll go find out what somebody else thinks. And then we'll compare and we'll have debates. And 
now with the consequences so huge, with whole families being ripped apart and our very basic hard-won freedoms being lost, to say, look, if you think that that's the right thing to do, let's compare our information. Let's look at the different sources and I'll say what I think you believe, you say what you think I believe, so at least we can articulate each other's perspectives and understand why we might think what we think, and then take it from there instead of this, you know, make each other wrong and separate and divide mm. and do really dangerous things. Yes, I really like your mantra uh, that... I'm a friend of your soul and an enemy of your project. It seems like a, a very, in a way, a sort of feminine befriending kind of a, a strategy for disarming people with whom you fundamentally disagree. I, I wonder if you could just explain a bit more for our listeners what, what you mean by that, by that mantra. So my fundamental orientation in life is spiritual. I relate to myself as a spiritual, uh, eternal being who's here for life for some amount of time with a, a purpose. And because that's my belief, my spiritual orientation of a sense of oneness, that we are all connected. I meditate and really have a committed meditation practice. I've had benefit of plant medicine and other tools that have really facilitated my understanding of the interconnection in all life. And I don't want that to be compartmentalized, like, oh, now I'm meditating, or now I'm having this great sense of oneness and love and recognizing that love is the life force and, you know, all of that, and then come and hate people who have a different view than I do. I I might want to stop the project that they're doing because I find it to be destructive, but it doesn't mean I want to separate or create the illusion of separation from them because I do believe that we're all connected. Fundamentally, that is, that's the stronger sort of knowing that I have than anything else. So coming at it in that way honors both truths. One, which is, nope, I don't go for this. <laughs> like right now, I don't go for the mandate. I don't believe that all people should be mandated to do something with their bodies against their will. In fact, I don't believe that anyone should be able to violate anyone against their will. That's a fundamental guiding principle that defines freedom in, to me. So because of that, I wanted, I'm going to work hard to stop it. I just do it with an open heart and I think probably a little less of like an attachment to the outcome. I'm mm. doing what I feel is the right thing to do, all things considered. I'm using my purpose and my passion and my capacities on behalf of doing something that I've really spent time to, you know, feel into that. Is this the right use of me? And does it maintain my, am I, am I being my best self in the, in the process and are my actions reflecting that? And as much as possible to be able to say yes to that, and that's all there is. It's not like, am I optimistic or hopeful? I'm just simply doing what's mine to do. So it kind of takes the edge off. And I think that's probably what you're thinking of as more feminine or friendly or something. It's just without the edge of, you have to agree with me. It's like, no, you don't. I don't have to agree with you. We'll just do what we do and uh, see see how it goes. And to do that as respectfully as possible. And I mean, I can say in all the work that I do, and it's, you know, pretty worldly and big and lots of people involved. I'm probably most proud of my family relations, which cross all kinds of worldview divides, where you know, I have vaccinated kids, unvaccinated kids, kids who believe this, kids who believe that. And we are really committed to finding a way to keeping our love and closeness alive and robust in the face of um, what could have, I'm watching other families just get torn apart. And we're really having to have a common commitment to that. And I'm, I'm very grateful that we do. 
That's really beautifully said. And to put it a different way, it seems to me like you're much more interested in partnership than in domination. You don't have to be right. You don't have to convince somebody else to your point of view. You'll treat them respectfully and have a conversation with them, engage with them to see if together you can maybe arrive at both finding new insights, finding uh, an even deeper or higher truth, but you don't feel the need to impose your will on somebody else. I actually don't believe that we will survive as a species until we get beyond the notion that we're going to all agree. We're not going to agree. We need to have the, I mean, for me, the fundamental agreement needs to be that we don't violate each other against our will. So that means you can believe and do whatever you do so long as it doesn't violate my ability to do the same. And that sounds simple. It gets pretty complex. I had a really interesting conversation yesterday, actually, where I got a group of, you know, I would say formerly pretty staunch Republicans together with a group of very a lineage of democratic heritage together to talk about combining legal teams to go after some of the uh, lawsuits against schools for mandating vaccines for children, which is actually illegal, but needs a lot of uh, legal help to get there. Anyway, got them in the room and I felt like my main job was to say we're staying focused on what's the minimum sufficient that we need to agree on in order to make this very leveraged move together. We don't need to agree on all kinds of environmental policies. We don't need to agree on what we thought of this person or that person. We need to agree that we we don't together believe that schools should impose a medical mandate for children with a, an experimental, at best, <laughs> injection. So, okay, and that was my whole job was just keep it here, guys, keep it here in this sort of Venn diagram where we're just focused on the center overlap. And it really comes up in um, what I believe is that there is a very developed, well-funded agenda for what's called transhumanism, which is the AI interface with human biology. And I believe that it is going to happen, that it is happening. I can describe a little more about what that means. But for me, the I don't anticipate that the people who are developing AI technology are going to stop because they suddenly come up with the kind of reverence for nature that I have or for carbon-based evolution, as they call it. That's mm. not what's going to happen. What we need to do is figure out how are we going to coexist here and what will be the fundamental principle and ethic and strategy by which we can coexist? That's not agreement. That's how to come up with a way to disagree in a way that doesn't violate anybody against their will. And to me, that's the challenge that we really face here. I'd love to pick up on that transhumanism topic again after the break. Sowing the Seeds of Change is brought to you through the generous support of Seeds, now growing together in a bioregion near you. Seeds is an experimental global collaborative community, learning how to collectively govern and regenerate our one home, this earth, one village at a time. Learn more at joinseeds.earth. Welcome back to my conversation with Kimberly Carter Gamble, producer, director and co-writer of The Thrive Movies. We'll come back to transhumanism in just a moment, but first of all, I'd like to ask you one of my questions that I ask all my guests. Uh, Kimberly, if you were democratically elected queen of the world for a day, what would be your first decree and why? <laughs> oh, this cuts right into my fundamental ethic of non-violation, which is uh, the first thing I would do is eliminate queens, <laughs> right, for anybody to rule the world. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, on the way, I would definitely um, take out the stranglehold of corporations in the financial system to control what's well, to control the government, because right now we can't even make new policies so long as the um, those who are supposedly elected are actually answering to the to the corporate interests. So for our 
for our planet and for people, I would uh, end corporate personhood in America, which is something that started in 2010 and gave corporations the same rights as people. So on my way to dismantling queendom, I would get rid of corporate personhood and do everything that I could also to avoid censorship, to allow true free speech and debate and absolutely stop any kind of medical mandate or what I see as tyranny. Um, thank you for that. Um, and maybe we'll come back to the freedom topic later on because that's such a fascinating one. Um, but on with transhumanism. So from what I know about it, there's there's this movement seems to be largely coming out of Silicon Valley, just north of where, where you live, that is about human augmentation. It's possibly about transcending death even. But... <laughs> I have to say, since we, we can't yet even make a washing machine that doesn't break down from time to time, I'm really not in any hurry uh, to be augmented personally. Uh, but seriously, it does seem that there are some powerful people very heavily invested emotionally and financially in making this a reality. It kind of fills me with horror, um, but clearly other people have a very different perspective on this that maybe it's death that fills them with horror uh, so yeah. what are your main thoughts your main concerns around transhumanism well it's a fascinating topic and I'm really grateful to be having it because it's remarkably off people's radar and I think it's a very important thing for us all to to be aware of so the gist of it is that human augmentation is everything from, you know, contact lenses to metal when you break your arm and a bone shattered to a hip replacement to a neural link that Musk talks about for hooking up your brain to a computer to an actual robotic interface of where you have many organs or capacities replaced and enhanced. We can talk about what enhanced means. Um, by technology. And sort of the grandfather of the movement is this guy, Ray Kurzweil, who is actually the head of Google's Department of Engineering. He's a very powerful guy. There are billions and billions of dollars that have been invested, and some of the smartest in terms of most shrewd and technically trained and intelligent people, not wise, uh, but smart in that way, um, developing technology and it's and they come from a perspective which is that humans carbon-based evolution has been woefully inefficient they believe and this is all self-stated by them they believe that a Microsoft computer program has already proven itself to be more efficient than nature and that the goal would be to actually have a robotic human interface such that by the year 2045, robots would supersede humans as the dominant species on the planet. And as a result, there would be no death until chosen and complete control over the environment. So it's very easy to just think, this is nuts. You know, the zero reverence for life, for nature, for process, for the benefit of loss in our development. I mean, all those sorts of things that we sit around and could probably talk about and agree upon. This is exactly where we are not going to agree. Ray Kurzweil and I are not going to agree. That's not the goal here. He has frozen. So a lot of these guys come from having their dads die. And it was really impactful. And in Ray Kurzweil's case, he froze his dad in a process called cryogenics. And the idea is that you can bring, he wants to bring his dad back to life and infuse him with this AI capacity that will have him then live forever. And death is something in their minds to be averted at all costs. And so so that's their goal. And then you have a rollout of it that includes everything from longevity, you know, ways to live longer, healthier, like I said, a hip replacement, some, you know, it goes all the way up to technologies where you can learn a language in a second by batting your eyelash. I mean, the, the technology that does exist 
makes a washing machine kind of exceptionally obsolete. We're really talking about a whole next level of capacity. So the issue is that it's all based on data. So training this AI to be able to interface with humans comes from data that we're all generating. So for example, when you have a little Fitbit watch or something and it's tracking your, there you go, tracking your heart rate and all that. Well, you don't. So you have data that's helping you know something about yourself and your biorhythms. Maybe there's one to track your sleep to make sure you're exercising. You know, there's a lot of benefit from feedback. That's what a headache is, right? Something's wrong. So you do something about it. And this is just quicker, more customized feedback that we're gaining access to in the form of this technology. The issue is who owns that data and what's it's used for. So it turns out that that data is actually owned by the technology companies and it's informing them about how to develop these AI robots and how to interface with humans, whether it's your you know, for surveillance of eyeball tracking for, you know, now when you look at your computer, if you hold your eye on something, the next thing you know, you got an ad for it. Like, how did that happen? Well, it's because we're giving them this data through these various technologies, and they are trading it and developing a whole new economy based on it called the fourth uh, industrial revolution. I mean, there's a a lot to unpack here, and I have a, a little download on it that hopefully you could put in your show notes. If someone wants to know more, they can they can look it up. Oh. But the gist of it is that ownership of that data is a very relevant topic for people because if you maybe you want to have a medical company have data in order to develop some of these things. Like I have a diabetic friend who has a, an implant that lets his body know exactly when he needs new insulin. And it's a much improved way to deal with that. He wants that. But if he could be selling his data to the medical company that's then making a fortune on it, that would be honoring that it's his data and his choice. And he's a sovereign being deciding whether or not to give that information and toward what end. Instead, we are just hook, line, and sinker pouring funding every time you use Google and all the rest into these things that are developing with an intention to achieve what's called singularity, which is the point in time when robots basically program themselves and supersede humans as we know them. So what's your main objection to transhumanism? Is it the lack of personal freedom to choose what data we share? Or is it a more spiritual objection to this attempt to transcend death or all of the above or neither of the above? Well, my I would say personally, I have a deep reverence for nature and for carbon-based humans. <laughs> I, I really, I am okay with dying. I have experienced loss in my life that has deepened me and expanded my consciousness in ways that I wouldn't do without. I don't think all loss is bad. And I'm, so for my own personal belief, it doesn't interest me. I don't want that. That doesn't mean I don't wear contact lenses or that I won't at some point want some kind of, oh, I have an implant in my mouth, right? That's human augmentation. So we all have our ways that we'll engage, and I have mine. I would consider them limited in the overall scheme of things. However, that's not the point. You know, that's great. I have my opinion. Ray has his, and everybody involved has a little variation on whatever it is from absolutely don't want to be have any kind of technological interface to I'm happy to be the most efficient being on the planet, never sleep, never eat, and live forever as a robot. So for me, the consideration with data is simply that there's no ethical governance of this move. People are unaware of it. They're providing very valuable information that they could be earning money from. To me, it's an alternative to universal basic income, where if people actually own their data, they can choose to sell it where they want to. They can align their financial world with their values in a way that's really important and which hasn't happened yet on the planet. So I see the data as being the linchpin in terms of sovereignty. 
that we need to be able to choose for ourselves. And this is a really complicated issue because believe me, we won't be going to the same schools. We won't be having the same jobs. Like the, in terms of efficiency and intellectual capacity and physical strength, I mean, Elon Musk says it'll be like the difference right now between a human being and their house cat. And I, I think that's true. I think that in terms of if those qualities that I just mentioned, we will have a vast divide on this planet. So how are we going to live together? How are we going to do this in a way that those folks don't get to say we have to go along with it? And that's the most important part of the conversation. Not that we're going to somehow all wake up with equal reverence for the natural life cycle. It's that we're going to all wake up with a commitment to this non-violation principle will be imposed with rules, but not rulers that say, you don't actually get to impose that on me. It does seem rather like playing with fire. History would seem to suggest that humans are really, really bad at those unforeseen consequences, like introducing non-native species to overcome a short-term problem and creating 10 new problems. So I get very concerned when I hear about things like the singularity, where computers become so smart that they're able to design their own next generation and their progress just goes exponential. I mean, what could possibly go wrong, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's a horrible idea, in my opinion, and I wish it didn't exist. It's just that that won't get us where we need to go. It does exist. It's incredibly well-funded with some of the most powerful people on the planet. And wishing that it didn't exist or thinking that it's a horrible idea isn't sufficient. And that's how I feel about a lot of stuff. We have to get past that now. I'm a super practical gal. I'm the producer, right, of these um, big projects that we have. I know what it takes. You know that. You've got to map out how are you actually going to get there. It comes down to very day-to-day -day strategies and some core principles that you're going to operate by. And I think that's true in this world where we have to realize there are people who fundamentally disagree at such a core level that now the job is to come up with a guiding principle that allows us to live together because changing each other's minds has also historically proven to be impossible. It seems that some of these technologies can be very seductive and I can see how people get very excited about them and I certainly don't want to come across as some sort of Luddite that's like you know, it's all going to be terrible, but wondering how we can just temper those ambitions with an equal measure of wisdom. So, okay, there are things that we can do, but does that mean that we should do them? How do, how can we promote that partnership between technology and wisdom so that we really can create thriving? Yeah, well, fortunately, there are wonderful people showing up with just that mission is to have to build the alliances across worldview where we engage the ethical conversation that says just because you can doesn't mean that you get to it doesn't mean also it doesn't mean we get to stop it it does mean that we get to stop it having a rampant universal impact and that's my grave concern for example with the notion of a universal i'll call it a vaccine I don't believe it is a vaccine, but anyway, we'll call it that. So um, I think that it's very dangerous to, to intervene with human immunity, which is one of the most adaptive, gorgeous responses that humans have have to our great advantage. And the notion of narrowing that to go after one particular virus and open ourselves up to huge uh, risk with others, I think is a, is a huge mistake. And I think it paves the road to other universal strategies having to do with, oh, now we're going to say it, you know, it harms the planet to have to grow so much food. So we're going to make it so people need less food. And the way we can do that is to create this AI interface with them where they need fewer calories. It's like, wait a minute, we need to have sovereign say over this stuff. And so there's something called superhumans with uh, Christian Pusateri is doing. There's another organization. I'm sorry, I'm not, I can send you the link, but a, a guy who's put together a fabulous group of people with a vast uh, fosters 
part of it, my co-creator and everything here, and I think Elon Musk. I mean, it's a big group of people who do not see eye to eye, but who are discussing the strategies and the technologies and things like that so that we're, we're able to guide it and not just go, wow, that's so creepy, they shouldn't do that. That's, that's not an effective strategy here. Well, it's good to hear that those conversations are going on because there are times when the world feels so divided that I didn't even know if that dialogue was happening. So that is that is encouraging to hear. I think the whole notion of ethics and a, and a universal ethic, actually, of non-violation is something that is rising now as people realize that that's really the next level of of what we need to be doing here. This idea of just, I'm going to force you to go along with my belief is we won't make it. If that if that's the strategy we choose, uh, we won't make it. And so instead, I think enough of us get that and are rising to the occasion to have these difficult, uncomfortable conversations, which kind of comes back to something about the notion of our oneness, which is who are we? You know, who who am I? And what is my belief system? What is my worldview like? I'm more than my opinion. I'm more than my beliefs. I'm more than my worldview. Love is more important to me. Love, I believe, is a subset of freedom. So we're free to actually express ourselves in this way as long as we're not violating one another. And so being able to sit at a table with people who just have really different worldviews is a super valuable exercise. And to watch what happens, and I have to go, wow, watch this body of mine react to this idea. It's, it's an idea. Now, of course, I'm afraid of it because if it prevails, it will be an end to something that I care about. So I honor that. That's how they feel about my idea. And so, okay, now let's just stay with this and stay in communication and see what is in that Venn diagram. What's the overlap? What's the minimum sufficient agreement that we can have. And once again, I suggest that it is the non-violation principle, which is what Martin Luther King and Gandhi and other people throughout history have said, that's the bottom line. That's the only thing everybody agrees to is that they don't want to be violated against their will. And even Ray Kurzweil and I would agree on that. Beautifully said. And we'll pick up on some of those themes after the break. Sowing the Seeds of Change is brought to you through the generous support of Seeds, now growing together in a bioregion near you. Seeds is an experimental global collaborative community, learning how to collectively govern and regenerate our one home, this earth, one village at a time. Learn more at joinseeds.earth. Welcome back to my conversation with Kimberly Carter-Gamble, producer, director and co-writer of The Thrive Movies. So, Kimberly, another one of my traditional questions now. What's the last time that you did something for the first time and what was it? I think that I did something for the first time. That's different than that. I just saw something for the first time, I'll tell you. But okay, so what I did for the first time was I, I went ziplining for the first time for my 69th birthday with my grandkids. That was really fun. I had never ziplined. And I used to think I don't like heights and all that kind of stuff. But I like playing with my grandkids more than I don't like heights. So it was a lot of fun. <laughs> And I did it, and it was, like, actually a lot more enjoyable than I expected. But I'll answer kind of a different question, which is what I have seen that I had never seen before. I actually saw a bee take a nap. Yesterday, I was treading water, which I do every afternoon. I have a pool, and I tread water for 45 minutes every afternoon just to move my body. And I have a little garden outside of it, and I was watching the bees come and go. And I watched, and I was sure this bee was actually sleeping I couldn't believe it. And then it got up and left like about 20 minutes later. And I looked it up on the internet to bees nap. And it's true, they do. So I saw a bee take a nap in a flower, which I just thought was so, so lovely. <laughs> I'd never even thought about bees having a little power nap. That's gorgeous. Well, think of how busy they are. I'm a bee gal. I'm really, you know, of course, for pollination sake, and we have huge problems with bee colony collapse. And I worked with a local university here in California to cultivate 
native bees in my garden. I actually have 78 species of native bees in my garden. And, you know, one of them is, it like creates little nests under roses. It'll chew off the edges of rose petals and create a little nest and sleep there. They have all different kinds of habitats and ways of doing their glorious work. So to find out that they need a nap didn't surprise me at all. I just never seen one do it. Gorgeous. So I'd like to pick up on what we were talking about just before the break around the themes of love and freedom and nonviolence towards the person. And I wonder if we could talk about that in the context of the vaccine, which is clearly something that you have strong views about. So what is the what are your concerns around the vaccine and how can we reconcile that with freedom because i know especially in the us the vaccine has come to be very politicized and what some people see as their freedom their sovereignty over their own body to choose not to have the vaccine is seen by other people as an intrusion on their freedom from covid So this is where it feels like we have a clash of freedoms, that we have fundamentally different views about what freedom looks like. And whichever way we slice that, it seems like somebody is going to feel like their freedom is being imposed upon. Yeah, it's really, you know, an extreme situation here and it's an important topic. The way I see it is that it really seems to come down to sources of information. What I notice is that, you know, people who have a particular source of information with Gates and Fauci and CNN and the CDC and the WHO have a belief that non-vaccinated people are helping to spread this deadly virus and that it violates their right to stay healthy if we all would just agree to this thing. And then others of us who look at all kinds of other sources of information, including Nobel laureates, the inventor of the the testing for COVID, heads of hospitals, thousands of frontline doctors, I mean, very credentialed people. So it's not as if one side has credentials and the other side does it, but they have a different conclusion and different evidence. And so for me, it feels like given that my I don't believe people will agree. And instead, I believe that if I were to say you can't get a vaccine, even if you believe what you believe, or for you to tell me I can't, one of the things that is sort of a minimum sufficient way to proceed, given the consequences in our world right now, would be to say, let me expose you to the information that I'm using to form my opinion And then you expose me to yours and let's discuss it. And let's get some experts to debate this in a way that the whole world can watch so that we have access to these different opinions. And in fact, what I have found is that most people who believe, in fact, everyone who believes that it's irresponsible to be unvaccinated has not actually taken the time to unpack the very real evidence, both of negative consequences of the vaccine, the ill-advised content of the vaccines, its potential harm to ongoing immunity, and, and all the rest. So I say you don't get to listen to one source of information that has the most conflict of interest in it. So the same people telling you that own the patents and have huge financial benefit from it, and then mm. not listen to people for whom that's not the case, but who are risking their reputations and their livelihood with their jobs and everything else to speak out and say, wait a minute, we have more deaths from this vaccine than from all other vaccines historically combined. Now we're talking about having it be for children when in fact the risk of children dying from COVID are far less than their risk of dying and having lifelong medical uh, negative medical consequences from the vaccine. So The information is out there, very credible information that I believe it's like a minimum sufficient requirement that we could all articulate each other's view on this. 
Because if you're going to tell me that I should do something, that you should be able to get me to do something, convince me. Show me the evidence about the virus and the injection, who's doing it, where it's going, the boosters for the rest of my life, limiting my immune system, becoming medically dependent on a world that feeds into this transhumanist agenda. The same people behind all this vaccine stuff are the people who are behind the transhumanist agenda, just so for the record. So, so wait a minute. How, how does all this fit? It's too, um, it's a shallow fear-based strategy to have us just divide and conquer so that we're going against each other instead of coming together to find out what's the best imaginable way to deal with an unprecedented health crisis on our planet. Whether that health crisis is actually, you know, a man-made virus or a natural phenomenon or something that's a really bad flu. I mean, there's all kinds of opinions and information out there. We need to be exposed to all of it needs to be being debated because, I mean, I was just thinking about it with the holidays coming up, the number of families who are torn apart. That's a really big deal. Family matters. These relations we have for our whole lives with people to have that torn apart when we don't even have the information that each other's relying on to make these life-changing decisions. I feel like that's the place where for me it's, I'll have any conversation with anybody, we just need to expose ourselves to what is informing you and what is informing me. And we, you know, put that together in a way that like sort of the friends and family version of This is the core stuff that has us believing what we're believing. Please provide that from your end. And then let's look at financial incentive and control incentive because there's just, I mean, I know, you know, if you said with the BP oil spill, should BP be the one telling us when it's all cleaned up and what a good job they've done? (laughs) Or should we maybe be having another opinion there to assess it? Checks and balances has been a part of, our heritage that we value, not that it's always been implemented or executed, but it's certainly been a value. And now you're supposed to snitch on each other, you know, like, wait a minute, no, no. So for me, it's that kind of core thing that we talked about in the beginning with courage. When do you just say, this is too consequential for me to be blinded by fear? I'm gonna have to say, if I'm afraid, I need to set that aside and use common sense and then have a core moral compass that I make my decision by that isn't just fear-based. And to me, once again, that core moral compass that can apply to all of us across all our differences is that you get to do what you want if it doesn't violate me against my will, and I get to do the same. So be vaccinated, but don't make a mandate. Thank you for that um, very, very wise um, insight. So we've been talking a lot about concerns for the future, things that you would prefer not to see manifest for humanity. Maybe we can now flip that around and talk about the beautiful positive side. And I'd love to hear about your vision for the future and of course, your whole theme is thriving. So what does a thriving future for the world look like to you? Well, I picture it all the time and I work toward it all the time. And I can say it's extremely practical, which is really based on what we're talking about, that a thriving future for me is one where we actually have mastered disagree enough to live in harmony based on a non-violation principle with people who are have completely different worldviews than we have. And the way that that can show up is with personal accountability. Because if you don't get to violate me against my will, it means you don't get to pollute the water stream. It means you don't get to do all kinds of things that are currently wreaking havoc with our planet and with each other. And so the practical consequences of learning to do that are huge. Uh, and I believe take care of all of the things that now look like partisan issues, you know, some environmental cleanup issue. 
don't you don't get to hide behind your corporate role. You're personally accountable for not violating me, and that includes my right to clean air, clean water, and the ability to survive. And in that, I think that we can thrive. I really don't think it's going to happen because my most wonderful worldview prevails, or anybody else's does. I believe it's going to because be because we learn how to live harmoniously with different worldviews. It feels like it does have implications for ego. At the moment, we seem to have a widespread ego need to be right and to be seen to be right and to impose our rightness, even our self-righteousness on other people. So how do we move beyond that? Well, I think that we move beyond that. I mean, of course, they're expanding our own consciousness through the many tools and practices that are available. You know, it's always an inside job here. This whole thing, whatever it is that we're doing, we'll never be able to do better than we are <laughs> internally. I'm not waiting for everybody to be enlightened to have a thriving world. That's why I believe that a guiding principle where there's a rule of this principle that holds people accountable to it without mm. rulers enforcing it with unequal rights. I think that that's the ticket because I wouldn't I wouldn't be feeling too good about things if I thought, oh, well, as long as everyone's just going to wake up and be enlightened, we'll, we'll make it. I don't think that'll happen. However, I think that the great work that is available to help us all now to, um, to expand our consciousness and by that, I mean to be able to expand who we think we are so that when we're riled by somebody else's opinion, we actually know what it feels like to take a deep breath and redefine ourselves for a moment as interconnected beings, probably both trying our best to make a better world, having different ideas about how to do that. All right. So let me hear a little bit more. Let me hear a little bit more and learn how to do that. And I think that... I mean, to me, it comes down to healthy practices. It really matters to take care of ourselves and how to do these things and benefit from everyone who's coming along saying, hey, here's what I found, and then find how that applies for you. And, um, I, you know, I know you've done that, and I'm doing that, and I think that uh, we have responsibility to do it and also an opportunity. Beautiful. Thank you, Kimberly. So finally, time to turn the tables. Is there a question that you have for me? Yeah, I would love to know what's your purpose now in, you know, all that you've done and your courageous undertaking and the, and the valuable insights that you've brought back with you from your adventures. And now you're putting together this podcast and book and all the rest. What is your highest intention that you have? from all of this. Well, in a way, it follows on beautifully from your answer to my last question, that it is doing what I can do to spread this message of that inner shift, that inner accountability. So my next book, based on my doctoral dissertation, is called The Ocean in a Drop, because I've had so many people say to me, you know, what can I do? I'm just one person in eight billion. Um, how can anything that I do as an individual ever make any difference? But I believe with my spiritual belief system that even if what we do individually doesn't seem to make a difference in the material realm, I believe it does make a difference in the energetic, spiritual, intentional realm. So nothing that we ever do or think or say is ever wasted. It all helps to make a difference. And it also comes back to what you were just saying about understanding that we are all connected. We are all different facets of the same consciousness, the same conscious being that just permeates everything in the cosmos. So even when we encounter somebody that seems like our polar opposite they're reflecting something back to us and we're reflecting something to them and remembering that we are all one we are all connected maybe helps us to transcend our egos and our need to dominate that other person and to feel even if we don't like them we can still love them and to find that empathy and to imagine for a moment that if we were in their shoes if we'd have been born into their family their community their 
cultural milieu, their financial situation, then maybe we would believe the same things that they believe. That nobody ever actually sets out to be evil or stupid or, you know, no matter what adjectives we might like to stick on them, they're not. They're they're doing their best and they are behaving as rationally as any human ever does <laughs> to their life circumstances. So that's that's really where where I'm at at the moment. But actually through that process, it's much more like my research is me search. <laughs> so as I'm writing this, I'm also, I hope, exploring my own perspectives and raising my own consciousness. And if it happens to have similar benefits for anybody else, then so much the better. But I'm largely writing it for my, my own benefit as a process of deep reflection and trying to show up as my best self in this lifetime. Well, I love that. And I, I know the Rumi quote, you're not just a drop in the ocean, you're the ocean in a drop. So exactly. I, I love the title. And I think, I think that's so important. And I love that you're doing it. And I'm really, I'm grateful for what you're putting together and how you're showing up and for the quality of presence and depth of your inquiry and um, this way to have us, you know, one thing at work I used to do is have when in negotiating contracts, have each side negotiate for the other. So oh, interesting. because you're, you know, it's sort of like with kids, I would say you cut and then you choose. <laughs> right? So if you feel so good about how you cut it, you won't mind the other getting to choose. Same with negotiating a contract. And I think it's just kind of a good thing what we're talking about now. Can you can you articulate my perspective and why I might think it and let me do that for you? And I think a lot can happen in that. And it sounds like that's a lot of what you're talking about. Can we can we actually get practical here and, and see what is the alignment? Because as this guy I was talking to yesterday said, 90% um, of us agree on 80% of everything. And I think that's actually true. Yes. And finding that yes. is, is a great way to go. I remember listening to an interview with one of the Koch brothers who, let's say, are not my favourite people on the planet, but I was actually really surprised to find how much of what he said I agreed with. We might have different ideas about how to achieve certain ends, but there was a lot there to agree with, and yet so often we focus on our differences. No, I think that I think that that's really true, and it's an important thing to remember, and it helps with our own humility to actually go, oh, I hadn't imagined that. Okay, doesn't mean I'm going to agree or that you are, but it's still just a way to have connection, to not lose the connection. I think that's really what's so important. So thank you for your work in all of this and, and for this conversation. It's lovely to connect with you. And I hope that people will follow up and watch Thrive One or Thrive Two at thriveon.com. And also if you link to the thing on transhumanism, I think it's important for people to be able to learn a little bit more about it. It's such a such a big issue. It is and fascinating. Um, Kimberly, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your your time, your philosophy, your wisdom. I really appreciate you and all of the work that you're doing in the world. Thank you. I really enjoyed that conversation enormously. I very much appreciate Kimberly's philosophy of freedom and non-violation, and I'm going to steal her saying that I am a friend of your soul and an enemy of your project. I couldn't agree more that we have to remember how to listen to each other and how to disagree respectfully. Especially as we approach the holidays when we might well spend time with family members who have a different view from us. This was a really timely reminder. <laughs>